0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the federal opposition is calling for the government to allow Jody Wilson-Raybould to speak in full before the House of Commons Justice Committee. Did you know that your postal code could determine your car insurance rate? Also, what are the economic consequences if the Brexit vote fails tomorrow in the UK? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The federal government is uh, still, of course, deciding what's going to happen with the uh, SNC Lavalin file. Uh, there have been repeated calls and renewed calls by opposition MPs, including, of course, Andrew Scheer, the opposition leader, to have uh, Jody Wilson raybould reappear before that Justice Committee. Uh, because they want to get, well, her side of the story. They, they heard testimony, of course, from the uh, the former chief of staff of the prime minister's office last week, which seemed to contradict some of the things that she said. I don't know if we're ever going to get past the he said, she said element to this, but uh, this is uh, something that doesn't seem to be going away. As a matter of fact, there's a new uh, web page that has been put up right now by uh, the opposition members. It's called LetHerspeak.ca, which is supposed to pressure the government to... Uh, allow Ms. Wilson-Raybould to not only reappear before the committee, but to uh, unshackle her, as it were, so that she can say whatever she wants to say. Joining us to talk with us, Genevieve Telly, a professor of School of Pol- Political Studies at uh, the University of Ottawa. Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us on a busy day today. appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, this, uh, for anybody who thought this was an issue that's just going to go away in a couple of days, uh, this, this, as they say in the business, has legs, doesn't it?
1: Um, more or less I would say uh, because I see the opposition trying to keep up this this file uh, on this uh, political scene and so uh, they will do everything they can to have that discussed commented and, and keep that alive if, if I could say uh, we know that the Justice Committee will uh, meet again the, this week I think it's on Wednesday so they will try to have a motion for uh, to have Miss Wilson be able to come back to the committee uh, but I do see the of the opposition party in my sense is that they are kind of afraid also that this will eventually vanish because uh, we have heard a few new things last week but since then nothing the prime minister has p- spoken also publicly and so what are the new elements for us to keep talking about that so yes I see uh, the Conservatives launching that website uh, making calls to have uh, miss Wilson able to speak again uh, but as you said in your intro it's we are more in the he said she said and where did, will it stop um, I'm not sure that Canadian will learn thi- new things and I'm not sure that Canadian are will remain that interested with with that issue especially seeing new issue coming out um, you've talked about the tariff on aluminum and still, uh, the budget will be tabled last, next week and other things could come up. And so that's the, that's the problem for the opposition, how to k- to keep that remain on the public agenda.
0: I, I guess maybe one of the questions that, that we should be dr- addressing here is, is exactly what is it that they're trying to f- establish here. Uh, I mean, if the, the initial purpose of this committee uh, and these hearings before this committee uh, were to determine whether or not there had been political interference in a decision uh, with the SNC-Lavalin file, uh, that only occurred when uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould was the Attorney General, so why are they pursuing what happened after that? Is is, is that really germane to this debate?
1: Um, it will be, I think, for the Liberals, which is kind of surprising because I would think that they are trying to provide an explanation why she went out publicly with that. And so uh, Jerry uh, Gerald Butts last week kind of suggested very efficiently, I would say, that she started to talk once she was demoted within Cabinet. So what happened after that is kind of important for the Liberals. Um, it's also important because they want to show that they have the SNC-Lavalin uh, future at heart and and they want to tell Quebecer and maybe more broadly Canadian that they are concerned by the economic uh, consequences of what could happen. But for the conservative, um, I'm not really sure what benefit they could have because a few things that are concerning about the the testimony we have heard is that why uh, Ms. uh, Wilson-Raybould has not taken action on that file. So um, a few MPs have some questions to ask her. uh, How come the decision was taken rapidly? How come she didn't uh, send a document to the uh, PCO? uh, That kind of thing, the the, the Department of the Prime Minister. And so there are questions that could also benefit the Liberals. So um, yes, I, I wonder why the Conservative will push that, except to show that the Liberals are kind of a stubborn, controlling party. They don't want her to speak again, and they are hiding a few things. So I think that they're going to go along that vein for the coming days.
0: Genevieve, there seem to be two basic lines of thinking on, on this issue. Uh, one of and and they're polar opposites, obviously. One of them, of course, is that the prime minister and, and members of her staff, including Mr. Butts and others, uh, were egregious in their behavior by uh, constantly attacking the minister and 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 pressuring her uh, to to make a decision, actually reverse a decision uh, about how to deal with the uh, SNC Lavalin file. Uh, the other side of this, uh, and I think Mr. Butts probably alluded to this with his testimony last week, was, look, this is business as usual. I mean, every minister gets lobbied all the time, and, you know, Ms. Raybalt, Wilson, Wilson Raybolt rather, should have known that and should have expected that, not just on this file, but on every file. Where, where are you on this? I, I mean, obviously, that's the, that's the black and white of it. Is there a middle ground here?
1: Uh, I don't think so. My view on that is that, uh, depending on how you see the function or the role of Ms. Wilson-Rabel, your answer will, will be different. If you see her as the general prosecutor, so she's independent, she, she should be shielded from any pressure from anyone, then it is not appropriate what has happened. Now, was she acting upon that role or was she a Minister of Justice? If she was a Minister of Justice, that's different. She's part of the Cabinet, she's part of government, she's a part uh, in the conversation so she has to listen to her colleague and and weigh all the different aspects facts about that and then she, there's the, the pressure we're talking about are just normal pressure uh, good maybe solid discussion that that's occurring and for me it's I, i'm it's striking for me how the the, the function are are so clear uh, sharply disdain depending on how you see the file. So if you think that uh, she was a general prosecution, yes, it was inappropriate uh, to have that kind of a pressure. But if she was not, she was the justice minister, then it was okay. And I think that both are viewing things differently, meaning that uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould herself saw her as a general prosecutor, saw herself as a general prosecutor, uh, while Mr. Butt, Mr. Uh, Trudeau and uh, all his staff saw her as a justice minister so again we are in a situation that i think everybody is probably right in the sense that everybody has their own vision of what happened they are not contesting the facts the facts are well established and i don't know what new facts we will have with having miss wilson Rabel come back to the committee because she would exactly say this the same thing and so we won't Get that solved. Um, the only way, maybe, we could get that solved is to have the roles made more clearer. And so we are hearing now more and more experts saying, well, those two roles should be separated, uh, being uh, performed by different person. and so uh, the justice minister shouldn't have to think every day or every hour, okay, what's my role today? Am I the procure- general prosecutor or am I the justice minister? Which is kind of difficult to do every time, and so uh, that would make things clearer. But uh, personally, as I stand, it depends how you see the roles of each, and our, we don't have any enough facts to know really what was the situation.
0: Yeah, what's interesting about this, though, is, is this is not the first government that's given this portfolio, this well, double-headed portfolio of, of Justice Minister slash Attorney General. Why hasn't this happened before then? There must have been other circumstances with past governments where, where that minister, whoever it was at that time, we, we must have felt conflicted, but we, it's never gone public before.
1: Yes, because I think that there is a kind of solidarity within minister that you don't go public to, uh, with that. You could fight uh, hard within cabinet, but you don't go and 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 uh, say publicly that you, you you disapprove your your your, your, your the, the PM. And so uh, I did, though, in the past, have heard some minister, justice minister, more on the provincial scene, saying they were not that comfortable with the role. Uh, Now, that being said, it's kind of prestigious to be at the same time Justice Minister and General Prosecutor. So I don't know if they are themselves willing to to let go part of their uh, responsibility with that. Um, Now, uh, with Justin Trudeau, we have a new cabinet, a new dynamic where... people thought they were uh, in a better position to speak publicly um, about their own view and their differences within cabinet. Now, is that really the case? Some will say yes, some will say uh, no. I don't know if you heard Sheila Copps talking. recently So (laughs) She's really about the tradition of, well, you know, politics has not changed. Um, We could debate on that. Is it possible to do politics differently? Um, But yes, uh, I would say that, yes, that should have come before. And You know, um, justice is not a hard science in the sense that uh, we have uh, undisputed facts and we know exactly what to do. Uh, I- at a point, it's still a question of judgment and what is the priority, which is exactly what's going on with SNC-Lavalin. Is it uh, protecting jobs and protecting a company on the international scenes because our competitors are doing things differently, so should we, should we behave as they do, or is it about ethics and uh, the independence of justice and politics? Um, So those are really hard questions and maybe that's time to talk about that. Now, I was a bit surprised to see the international media, especially in the United States, Mm -hmm. recently saying, well, it's not about money, it's not about sex, (laughs) and you're doing there's this big issue about uh, a scandal in Canada. Is it really a scandal? Um, I'm not sure. It's a debate. Uh, I think it's a healthy debate. We should have it. Um, but to talk about corruption or a scandal, I'm not sure we are at that point.
0: Well, yeah, that's, uh, I guess, in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, you can see, for instance, some of the American media, and I've read some of those stories over the weekend as well, uh, about their perception of what's going on right now with this file. And and their idea of a scandal is, well, you know, paying off a hooker like the president <laughs> allegedly has done, or, mm-hmm. or any number of other things that may have gone on, Russian influence in, in, the, in the last federal election, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this this pales in comparison to some of the other quote unquote scandals that we've seen.
1: Yes, it does. Uh, but as I said, it's it's healthy to have that kind of debate. So I, I wish the opposition party would probably go more I- towards the nature of the policy than more about uh, perception that we don't really know what happens and we don't we won't be able to go at the bottom of the of the issue. And I don't think it's impossible because it's really a question of um, how I see my own role or my own place within the cabinet or, or parliament. Uh, but let's have the bigger picture. Let's talk about the policy. See, it, let's talk about the law that was passed. Um, yes, Justin Trudeau said uh, during the election campaign, uh, electoral campaign, that there would be no more budget omnibus bill table in Parliament. But look, that's what happened last year. Uh, this piece of legislation was put into a larger bill. Nobody had time to uh, evaluate the bill and see if everything was um, uh, okay. And so that we could question. So let's go into what really is the policy, what we should do have the debate and then discuss about that. And I would add that probably because we see a divide between Quebec and the rest of Canada. And part of that divide on this issue is that in Quebec, there was already the discussion about corrupt businesses because we had the inquiry a few years ago. Oh yeah, and yeah. that was, you know, the Charbonneau Commission. It was discussed. Um, we know that SNC-Lavalin uh, did... Uh, some wrongdoing, uh, but then we have to reflect on okay, what are we doing now and what is the economic reality? So maybe to have this discussion everywhere in Canada, that will be a healthy thing to do.
0: Given the fact that uh, the majority of people on this uh, Justice Committee are, are liberals, I mean, they have the government, they form the government, of course, and the governing party always has the majority on any one of these mm-hmm. committees, what are the chances that they're even going to allow uh, Jody Wilson Raybalt to reappear before the committee?
1: It depends how they see the pressure coming from the public. And so they will weigh down the benefit and cost and say, okay, uh, we will have more arm if we say no, she cannot te- a testim- uh, offer a new testimony in committee. So I think they are thinking, I'm sure they are thinking about that. Uh, and they will think about that until Wednesday. Uh, if they refuse her to appear again, they're going to have to articulate why publicly very carefully. For me, I see, I do see some grounds because uh, uh, Mr. Butts was, uh, Mr. Warnick, the, the the clerk of the Privy Council, was able to testify again because the rules have changed since his first appearance. Um, now the rules were not changed for Miss Wilson Raybould. So what would be the rationale for her to come back? Um, if she's allowed to come back, then we could ask every other test. Uh, t- um, Witnesses to come back again, and so we never end towards that. so I do see some ground to to refuse her to come back uh, she could talk elsewhere, she could go publicly, she could talk to media um, uh, she could make a press a uh, news press conference as Justin Trudeau has done uh, last week so there are other outlets for her to speak um i'm not a big fan of the justice committee uh, i see it uh, i see it as a highly partisan and so i prefer the work done by the ethics, um um i forgot her na- his name mr dion who, uh, in parliament um and so he probably will be able to get to the bottom in a more Objective, less partisan way, I think.
0: Yeah, I've, I've noticed uh, I, just in watching uh, just about anybody who's appeared before this committee. There's a lot of political grandstanding by members of the committee. I, I, I'm all three parties, actually, or four, yes. I guess that are, that make that committee up. And it, it gets to the point where you have to wonder sometimes whether they're seeking the truth or just trying to make a statement that's going to make uh, you know the, the news clip on the, the news that night.
1: I I think so. And on top of that, they are not prosecutors themselves, so they don't have the ability to uh, question a witness and to go to the bottom of everything. And they don't have a clear mandate either, so uh, yes, it's mostly partisan, it's a show for the the media, and it it works because surprisingly the the ratings (laughs) are very high, so it seems that a lot of Canadians have listened to the hearing in the committee. Uh, But for me, it's not the best place to really know what has happened, um, if it's possible to know, and also to offer some recommendation: what to do for the future to, if there are a few things to be corrected.
0: Well, we'll see. We'll know in the next couple of days just what's going to happen. Genevieve, as always, thank you so much for this. I appreciate your time and your perspective on this. Thank you very much. Good care. Genevieve Telly, of course, a professor of political science at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly
2: Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: You can drive your car. Trying to insure your car could be another matter altogether, though. Did you know, I'm sure you do, unless you maybe haven't moved for the last little while, that uh, insurance companies actually use your postal code as one of the determinants as to how much you're going to pay for car insurance? I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Uh, and and we've been talking about this on the show. It, it happened to me. We moved to about a year or so ago, and uh, my car insurance went up. I haven't had any tickets, haven't had any speeding tickets, haven't had anything at all. No accidents, nothing going wrong. But all of a sudden, they just said, "Well, you know." And we only moved like a half a mile away from where we had lived before. But my rates went up. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Uh, and and this is not a new way. This has been happening for quite some time now. When is the government going to do something about it? Well, it could be could be soon. Joining us to talk about this is Garantan Singh, who is the MPP for Brampton East. Uh, he's the auto insurance critic uh, for the Ontario NDP party. Uh, Garantan, thank you so much for getting us back on, on the program here and getting uh, involved in this. Uh, I saw, as I'm sure you did, the story about this in the Toronto Star over the weekend. Uh, this must be like deja vu for you, because you actually tried to address this a while ago, didn't you?
3: I did. First of off, good morning, and thank you for having me here today. This issue that you've described is exactly the problem that I'm hearing in Brampton and across the GTA, people with perfect record are having to be, uh, having to pay higher uh, car insurance rates purely based on the neighbourhood that they live in. Often, they move into Brampton and they see the rates go up as much as 50%. In some situations, it's doubling just because of their postal code. That's wrong. That's unfair. And we need, we need to start standing up to these insurance companies and telling telling them that they should charge individuals based on their record, not based on where they live.
0: What's the rationale? I assume they've tried to justify this. I don't know that they could, but, I mean, what's, the, what's their explanation?
3: You know, I've met them many, many times, and they provided you know, a, a bunch of reasons that I, quite frankly, have not found satisfactory, because ultimately it comes down to this. If we're talking about a neighborhood, and if you are driving and, and you, know your, your, you know your drive to work every, every day is the same and you never had an accident, how does it make sense? you're being charged more because your neighbor is, has been in an accident or your neighbor's neighbor has been in an accident. What they're doing is they're actually carving out portions of the GTA and they're making the people and the residents in those areas have higher rates purely based on their postal code and, or where they live or, or their phone number, effectively their geographic region. And, um, and effectively, when you look at it, you and me as reasonable people, we know that's not fair. And the, the insurance company is doubling down and saying, no, you know, there's high rates of accident, there's this or that. Well, that doesn't make sense when an when individual has driven for 20 years with no accidents and not even a speeding ticket sometimes, and they're still being charged more because of where they live. That's unfair and that's discriminatory.
0: Well, and it doesn't make any sense from a rational standpoint. I mean, I'll, I'll use my example. As I say, I, I uh, you know, a year or so ago we moved and, and we just noticed that, you know, my insurance car, the rates went up in the car. I, I'm actually sh- a shorter distance. Uh, to drive to work in the morning than I was at the other house uh, on the same roads essentially that I was driving for the last 15 years yet my insurance rates went up because they they say well that, that neighborhood that you're in now which abuts the old neighborhood apparently has they say it's a, it's a bigger risk I, I just can't understand that kind of rationale
3: well also like you know you're kind of you're getting into the details which is appropriate because you know they look at where you live not where you worked right someone could spend you know, we know how it is in life right now. You often spend majority of your time uh, in and around your work because that's where, you know, eight to nine hours of your day go. So it's very arbitrary as well, I think, to use this value of where you live as opposed to where you work or where the accident occurs. So even the value that they're using right now doesn't make sense. And ultimately, it comes to an issue of fairness. And we're seeing that communities across the GTHA. Um, and often communities where there's, you know, it's a more of a working community, you know, those are the communities that are being charged higher. What we found in Brampton is when we compared rates in Brampton to Rosedale, for, exa- uh, for example, we found, you know, density very similar. We all use the 401, we all use the same highways. But all of a sudden, just, just by moving a few, you know, kilometers out to Rosedale, your rates are going to drop down 50%. That's not fair.
0: So there's an inequity here and, and an injustice here. And, and I guess the, the question that I, uh, uh, jumps to my mind is you you tried to address this a few months ago with a private member's bill uh, that uh, I thought addressed the issue pretty well. You articulated exactly what the concerns were, and I know you've heard from a lot of residents about this. Yet it got voted down. I can't understand that.
3: Well, what, what we saw instead is that this conservative government right now, quite frankly, they're not serious about lowering car insurance rates. And what they had is my bill, which thirty over 30 lawyers came out, dozens of lawyers came out in support of my bill, and they said, the language in my bill will actually end car insurance. And instead, they propped up their, uh, you know, they have a, a member from uh, Milton, uh, and they, they, they're saying he has a private member's bill. But when the lawyers looked at both bills side by side, they realized that the conservative bill had a huge, and still has a huge, Little loophole in it, which is actually not going to end postal code discrimination. The language that his bill uses is it will prevent and it will prohibit factors primarily related to postal code discrimination. Well, you know, as a lawyer, I'm a lawyer as well, and when I uh, when I use see that word primarily, well, that's a huge loophole because what it allows for is people to, the insurance company to say, well, postal is not our primary factor, it's our secondary, or it's our tertiary. But ultimately, it's still a factor involved in assessing someone's premiums, and it's not going to take uh, uh, postcode off the table, and it could quite possibly keep rates just as high as they were before.
0: Well, exactly, and and this is not unusual. I mean, for uh, for instance, a private members bill by an opposition member, such as you did, uh, gets tossed out by the the sitting government, and then somebody from their government comes along. Uh, with a watered-down version of the same kind of legislation, and it's essentially to say, "See, we are addressing this," but they still, they still seem to to have this this, I don't know what it is, some kind of an influence over top of them by the insurance industry, and this has been going on for years. It's not just this government; it's it's the last government, the one before that. It just seems as if these guys in the industry get to write their own rules. Well,
3: let's just contextualize right now. When we talk about insurance companies right now, we're talking about gigantic. Billion-dollar corporations—we're talking about huge, huge, huge uh, corporations that that, have—you know—their main, their main motive is profit-making. So much so that a a recent report came out last year that demonstrated that uh, insurance companies have overcharged. This is above profits, above—you know—the premiums. They overcharged Ontarians as much as five billion dollars over the past couple of years. So these. you know, huge corporations are making profits hand over fist right now off the backs of literally the little guy, off the backs of literally Ontarians who need this auto insurance to get to school, to get to work, because they live in communities that don't have robust or strong uh, transit system. In many communities, you got to drive to get around. Like in Brampton, if you don't got a car, you're not getting to work. If you don't got a car, you're not getting to school. So it, this is often uh, mandatory in many communities. And... Governments have not. The past liberal and conservative governments have not stood up to auto insurance companies. And, um, you know, we're, our message is loud and clear. We've been fighting this fight for the past seven years, and our message has been the same. we got to stop the discriminatory practices, which are charging people so much money. we got to, you know, stop the cuts to benefits. Often people's uh, benefits that they get for driving are being cut further and further. And we need to stand up to these companies and say enough is enough. Start charging people fair rates.
0: Well, I know you've researched this. I mean, When you've been on the program in the past, we've talked about some of those other elements, and I know that you've talked about that element with your private member's bill. Uh, because the, the double whammy that we're getting here is, first of all, they're charging, I, I think, unfairly, uh, de- de- depending on postal code. But the other element of this, too, that seems to get lost in this discussion, and I'm glad you brought it up again today, is we're getting less for that. They, you know, they cut benefits. They've cut the, the amount of money that's available if, if there is a collision or somebody's injured. Uh, you know, the, whether it's going to be therapy or any other sort of assistance that they're going to need. Uh, it's nowhere near the way it should be in situations like this. And the insurance companies simply say, sorry, that's just the way it's going to be. And the government lets them do it.
3: 100%. When we talk about auto insurance, let's keep this in mind. Auto insurance is a service. Often it's been so diluted right now that people think when they're paying auto insurance, they're paying, they're paying for their right to drive. You're not. You're actually paying to be protected in the, you know, terrible circumstance in which you potentially get into an accident and you need a, a further degree of support and that burden doesn't fall on the healthcare system. But those supports, that assurance that when you get into an accident you're going to be taken care of, is being eroded away every single day because these insurance companies are, are you know, they're cutting benefits to any kind of benefit you would get from getting into an accident or getting therapy or, or getting any sort of rehabilitation is being cut and eroded against and it's further and further turning into auto insurance, it's turning into a, a right to drive as opposed to what it should be is a protection for drivers.
0: So where do we go from here? And, and I mean, I'm glad the Star did their, their investigative reporting on this. And like I say, it echoes very much what you've been talking about for the last number of months right now. Uh, the legislation that's being proposed, by the way, is already head first reading. That was uh, I done a, a little while ago. Uh, that may well be what we're dealing with here. Is there a chance to do any amendments to that? I mean, can there, can there be any input at all from the public? Uh, certainly, I know the insurance industry's already had their input, but what about we, the people?
3: Well, that, that's where we come in as your opposition members, and that's what we're going to hold this government to account. And when this bill comes forward, we're going to say these are the issues that are happening, and if you take out this loophole, you know that's what's going to actually effectively uh, help uh, Ontarians. My, quite frankly, based on this government's track record, I think they wrote that loophole, in, uh, you know, with a lot of knowledge that is going to allow the backdoor to continue exploitation of everyday Ontarians. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're ready to keep on fighting, but this track record of this government has not been the best on this issue. It's been quite terrible, actually. Under this government, we've seen already premiums increase. We've seen them vote down bills uh, that are trying to end post discrimination. Even at their own uh, Conservative Convention, we've seen... Uh, their uh, resolutions voted down to lower auto insurance. So uh, the track record has been bad, but we're here to keep on fighting. You know, we're, we're here to hold this government to account and make sure that everyday people's voices get heard in, at Queen's Park.
0: Well, yeah, and, and obviously that's because of the, insu- the influence that the insurance industry has had. And and I know, <clears throat> excuse me, that the excuse or the rationale they always give is, look, you can shop around, you're a consumer, but... <laughs> it's it's you know, no matter who you go to you talk to a broker and they'll say okay i'll shop around for you i'll try to find which company is going to be the best deal for you in your particular situation but this this is a policy and they they all seem to play by the same rules so shopping around is not really going to get do you a whole lot of good you might get a couple of bucks off but they're still going to do, impose this sort of thing this uh, as you call it this postal code discrimination that that seems to be the rule of thumb for just about everybody in the industry
3: well, quite frankly, you know, this issue of post postcode discrimination is one issue that we need to tackle. But overall, auto insurance, our system, is broken here in Ontario. We have some of the safest roads in this country, yet we have, some of the, we have the highest auto insurance in this country. And all of this is pointing to a system that's broken. We're continually having our benefits eroded. Uh, people are paying more based on their neighbourhoods. So we need a rehaul, you know, top, top to bottom on this issue. And post discrimination is one of the many issues that we need to tackle, but overall we got a lot of auto insurance more fair and ultimately it comes to issue affordability. In Brampton, I can speak to you directly, some households are paying more for auto insurance than they are for their household mortgages. Take that in. It's just insane out here in Brampton and, and across the GTHA. So you know, we got to keep on fighting. We got to keep on pushing and holding the government to account.
0: Well, because that's the reality. I mean, as you say, we spend an awful lot of time in transportation, whether it's public transit or certainly in, if it's going to be individual vehicles like this. Uh, and, and, ironically, of course, a lot of the times we, you know, you may drive into that area. I mean, I, we spend a lot of time driving around the Brantford area, Brandford area, and other areas like this. Uh, yet they say, "What's the, it's your home address?" That, that is going to be the determining factor here. And I, it's just ludicrous. And the fact that it's gone on as long as it has, I think, is ridiculous. Uh, but I don't see governments caving into insurance companies. Or I do see it happening. I don't see them finally standing up to them. Uh, I mean, here we are in the in the age of the inquiry. Let's have a judicial committee about this, an investigation into that. Why aren't we talking to the insurance industry and say, why are you doing this? What's your justification for this?
3: I, I agree with you, because when we do have those conversations, quite quite frankly, what these insurance companies end up doing is they blame Ontarians. They blame everyday people as opposed to looking at themselves and saying, we are making record profits, we're making money hand over fist, and something that is provincially mandated. You can't drive a car without having insurance. So think of how you know, this all comes together. You have a system that is mandatory to do. You have insurance companies that are not being regulated in the way they should be by the government. And ultimately, we have the burden falling on everyday people and being charged higher and higher rates. This is clearly a broken system. This is clearly a system that we need to reevaluate. But you're right. We don't see this government doing it. And instead, quite frankly, we see the government putting forth all uh, alternatives and suggestions and solutions that are very fair, favorable to insurance companies. And that's wrong.
0: Well, I know one of the excuses they always try to come back with is, is as you mentioned, it's, uh, they say, well, there's rampant insurance fraud. Uh, and and I, I don't doubt that there's fraud. I guess there's fraud in just about any endeavor. I get that. I don't know if it's as rampant as they suggested it is. But uh I'm sure there's insurance fraud in other provinces as well, but the government seems to take a much more hands on approach to auto insurance in those other provinces. They have lower rates and it seems to be working. And in Ontario they just figure, no, this is the way we've always done it, and we're not gonna change.
3: Well, let's be very clear here. If there's fraud, go after the fraudster. You know, and, and, you know, if that fraudster has to pay higher rates or be penalized in any fashion, that's not a point of criticism right now. The point of criticism is to say, right now what they're doing is they're charging the fraudster's neighbor, who has a perfect record, who obeys the law, who's been driving carefully and and in a protective fashion for the past who knows how many years, that individual's feeling the brunt of, of the fraudster's actions. And any system that collectively blames an entire neighborhood based on a a few bad apples, that is a wrong, and that is a discriminatory system.
0: Why aren't we looking at places like British Columbia, Quebec, uh, places like that 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 seem to have a much more efficient system?
3: I, I think we should look at everything. I think right now we should look at everything and try to understand all the different systems that exist and operate in Ontario, and ultimately in Canada, rather. And we should be suggesting a system that works best for Ontario in our unique circumstances so I'm, I, you know I have conversations very regularly with people across this country about how to make a better insurance system and I think it's something a conversation that should continue
0: well I'm hoping and uh, and like I say I, I'm hoping there's a, a, f- a full debate about the the, the bill that's before the, uh, the the legislature right now because I'm not so sure that it addresses the needs and the concerns that a lot of us have right now uh, I'm sure this is not the last time we're going to talk about this I really appreciate you jumping on today though and uh, and, and give us your perspective on this thanks so much
3: your show is amazing, brother. I think you have top-notch journalism, but anytime you need me on, I'll, I'll be there, brother.
0: I appreciate it. Thanks again. Garin Tan Singh, of course, uh, the NDP MPP for Brampton East, and the auto insurance critic uh, for his uh, party, for the opposition party, of course. Uh, and, and you'll see this. I mean, just you know, look at your auto insurance bill. And, and by the way, uh, my concern here is with the auto insurance industry. I, I know, and I don't include brokers in that. They're the ones that just try to find you the best deal. And we've got some very, very capable and, and, and very dedicated people that do that sort of thing. I'm talking about the guys in the the big offices down on Bay Street in Toronto that just look at say, that look, it's all about profit, not about what's in the best interest of the consumer. And that's got to stop, really.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: As we mentioned on CHML News just a little while ago, this is a, a, a very important week in the U.K., Uh, This is uh, the date that uh, the next Brexit deal is going to be voted upon by the British House of Commons. Uh, Joining us to talk about the implications of that is uh, Marvin Ryder, who, of course, is a business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Good morning, Marvin. How are you doing today?
2: I am fine thank you Bill certainly better than they are in England
0: well that's uh, you know that's that old uh, phrase that they throw around there you know what's the definition of insanity do doing the same thing every time and expecting a different result uh, th- we've already been down this road of a brexit vote it did not go well uh, why would they be doing it again
2: hmm So first, for your, for your listeners, let's just go back a little yep. bit. In 2017, uh, England held a referendum in a 52 to 48 vote. The people of uh, uh, all of the England, I should say the United Kingdom, uh, voted to leave uh, Britain. And so that caused the Britain to invoke what's known as Clause 50 as part of the European Union agreement. That then started a clock ticking. Uh, And they had two years to to make up their minds and decide how they were going to leave. And that clicking, uh, ticking, ends on March 29th, 11 p.m., Greenwich Mean Time, when Britain is supposed to be leaving the European Union. Now, the fear had been that if you just walk out, well, that could cause a lot of turmoil, people not knowing, you know, what about me? I live in France, but I'm a British citizen. Am I still okay? What about that border with Northern Ireland? So... Theresa May, over the last two years, has been trying to negotiate a, a Brexit deal, meaning what does Britain's involvement with the European look like? European Union look like after they leave? She took a deal. She had negotiated a deal, and she took that to the British Parliament in January, and it was soundly defeated, uh, probably the biggest defeat of any British prime minister almost in history. So she said, okay, all right, okay, I'll, I'll go back, I'll talk to them some more. And as you pointed out, she's got a a revised deal that really seems to be almost identical to the deal that they had in January. And it is scheduled for a vote tomorrow. Uh, In fact, by this time tomorrow, the vote should have happened. And everyone assumes that it, too, is going to be voted down. So scheduled for Wednesday is a vote that, assuming it goes down, to ask the European Union if they could extend the deadline into the future. Now, that would actually require the European Union, 28 members of the European Union, to agree to give Britain more time. We actually haven't heard what that deadline would be, but we believe it's going to be until the end of December of this year to try to negotiate something. One other interesting wrinkle, though, Bill, is that a European court ruled that Britain could at any time up to 11 p.m. on March 29th decide to uh, disinvoke, if you will, or revoke Clause 50 and stay. They couldn't change any terms of the European Union, but they could say we've changed our mind up until then. And there is a group of people in in the Parliament who are saying, you know, we understand why people voted to leave a couple years ago. They were upset about immigration policies and refugees. But that crisis is past. Maybe we can just stay, and even though it would mean uh, uh, neglecting the result of a referendum, there are many people now saying maybe that's the best outcome. We don't know how any of this is going to play out.
0: Well, because there are so many variations. I mean, this this has just been a a, a dog's breakfast. Really, has from the outset. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody. Uh, even expected uh, the, the results of of that uh, referendum a couple of years ago. Everybody thought, oh, I'll we'll go through the motions," but no, oh, come on, we, we wouldn't be that silly. Uh, but they did. Uh, the the prime minister resigned, David Cameron, of course, uh, who was opposed to the, to leaving. Has, has uh, that's how Theresa May got the job in the first place, right? And she almost lost her job a couple of months ago. Her own party had a vote of non-confidence, and she just barely won that.
2: She did, but they did decide to stay behind her leadership, so she at least. Uh, and the other funny thing was the very next day, after losing the vote, there was a vote of non confidence in the government, which could have then have triggered an election. But the people sitting there actually said, "No, no, we still have confidence in this this group of people we don 't want an election over this, so go back and negotiate a bit more uh, now, just one other little wrinkle to Bill to your point uh, yes uh, this, this referendum was held. nobody thought it was going to be lost." The problem is that it was not universally lost, meaning both Scotland and Northern Ireland, if you just take a look at their votes on their own, voted to stay in the European Union. It was Wales and England who decided to leave. And within England, the more rural parts of England wanted to leave, whereas London itself wanted to stay. So there's hardly unanimity within Britain. And this is what's causing all of this fracturing and people not quite knowing what to do. Who do you listen to? Who's, uh, whose attitudes are right and wrong, and do, do things change over time? This is what's caused this tremendous upheaval. And frankly, Bill, as well, I should note, this is, has ripples in the stock market. There are economic implications here. There, for instance, there are many uh, North American companies. Take banks, for instance that uh, wanted to set up uh, within the European Union, and they chose London as the place to do it. Britain was in the European Union, so we can set a branch there and then be within the European Union. If Britain leaves, a number of those big banks are saying, well, we've, we've gambled wrong, we better move someplace else. And one of the things they're thinking of moving to Frankfurt in Germany, which would be solidly in the European Union. So there are jobs that can be lost, uh, companies all of this kind of stuff as well, but in the background.
0: And and the other ultimate irony, of course, is uh, Theresa May, of course, was was opposed to leaving anyway, uh, but she took over the gig and said, all right, that's what the referendum said, so I'm going to do this, and and she had to stumble along as a result of this. Uh, Is there any talk again of uh, of yet another referendum? Because that's an idea that's been floated more than once.
2: Well, uh, yes, so uh, uh, if they lose this vote tomorrow, and again, uh, the current thinking is that they are going to lose this vote tomorrow, this idea of giving an extension, what does an extension do? Well, it buys you time. Time to do what? On one hand, the argument could be made to negotiate a better deal, but she's already tried to do that, and the European Union says that this is as sweet as it's going to get, in part because they don't want to encourage other countries to suddenly decide to leave and get a sweet deal. If you stay, there's a cost to staying, and there's a cost to going. You know, you've got to figure that out. But the other thing it could do is buy time for another referendum, Uh, these referendums are are not binding on the government but they're also not inexpensive to run it would cost you you know, tens of millions, of probably even close to $100 million to hold, 100, billion, me, 100 million pounds to, to run a referendum in, in England. Um, and are you just fishing? What if it also went 52 48 to leave? Then you haven't accomplished anything. So people aren't quite sure which way to turn on this issue.
0: Well, the other element to this, too, is if they get the extension... Uh, history shows here that uh, the, the European nations are not going to give these guys any wiggle room. As you said, this, it's almost as if they want to teach them a lesson in case anybody else is considering this. So uh, no matter what the vote is going to be on this tomorrow, and it looks like they are going to go through with this, Marvin, uh, they're going to have to figure this out themselves. They're not going to get much help from the other guys.
2: Right. So let me give you a different example, Bill. It was just a few years ago that we were, our news were dominated with problems in Greece and Greece was facing one economic crisis after another. And there was a thought then that maybe the smartest thing to do was expel Greece from the European Union, let it stand on its own two feet. It would reissue its own currency. That would be devalued. But after some amount of hard times... Greece could get itself back on its feet economically. Greece is not one of the big players in the European Union, and therefore you could do that without really fracturing what you've got. But in the European Union, there are the dominant economy is obviously German, but Germany, but right behind it is England. And, and if you have England suddenly wanting to go, that is a significant shift uh, in the dynamics within the European Union. And that's why you don't want to make it easy for uh, an England or a France or a Germany to suddenly to turn their backs on the European Union. So I don't blame those people within the European Union for taking a hard-line stance. It's not their job to make it easy for England. England needs to understand their consequences. Just give you another quick example of that, Bill, uh, it's already been estimated that uh, Britain is going to have to pay 40 billion, that's with a B, 40 billion pounds, in compensation to the European Union, as part of the divorce agreement, as they were to go, that's also, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's $40 billion that could go into the education system or could go into the health system. Wait a minute, is that a good use of our money? So it's kind of like we're watching what could have happened in Canada if Quebec had decided to go. These divorces are not easy, they're not messy, and they come with big price tags.
0: Why do we fall for it every time, though? <laughs> I, and I mean, we, I'm, I'm using the collective we, yeah. uh, because let's face it, a lot of people bought that bill of goods that, oh, don't worry, this is not, this is going to be seamless. And so, as a matter of fact, if I recall, one of the arguments in favor of, of exiting was that it was going to save them billions of dollars instead of costing them billions of dollars. And now the stark reality has come forward on this. I mean, this, if nothing else, should serve as a lesson that, uh, as you say, these sorts of separations are, are, are pretty difficult for everybody involved.
2: So, Bill, let me say something controversial here. A, a democracies are messy institutions. Um the public and we want the public to be engaged the problem is it's very hard for the average citizen to understand the tremendous complexity uh, involved in these kinds of things so what tends to happen when you ask people to vote in a referendum they pick a small piece of a big puzzle a small piece that they can get their mind around and that is the major issue on which they're voting so for instance in brexit what really was going on there was a number of people in britain upset about uh... immigration policies that it seemed to be set in in brussels which is the capital headquarters of the european union that brussels was telling england you must accept maybe hundreds of thousands of refugees into your country britain already feeling that it had done its part had already accepted enough refugees and the average person said no no i don't want that uh... ignoring the fact that the european union was so much bigger than the refugee question but when it came to the vote they wanted to express their displeasure of being asked to take hundreds of thousands of refugees, and that's what triggered the vote. And that's, that is the inherent problem, if you will, with democracies. We tend to oversimplify. It, maybe I'll give you another example, and again, I'm going to upset some of your listeners, but in the summer we had an election in Ontario. Doug Ford was elected. Today I hear all kinds of people upset about electing Doug Ford. Well, we got rid of... Kathleen Wynne, but for many people there was one or two issues they really hated the Liberals about, and they were really voting to send a signal to the Liberals as opposed to voting in favor of the Conservatives. That's the messy part of democracy. I'm okay with that, because guess what? Our institutions will survive this over time, but if you're looking for rational, logical thinking, it's not always there when it comes to voting.
0: So, let's, let's just uh, uh, capsulize this, because this is going to happen, obviously, with the, uh, the yep. party Whip, uh, mr. Mitchell Andrew Mitchell uh, is uh, is the guy who's organizing this and saying yeah we're gonna do this vote and they, they're still you know singing this th- song I guess they want to sing right now oh, they, they, we think it's going to pass this time I don't think it is either but the reality here is is uh, if they don't get the extension and if they lose the vote tomorrow uh, there's no deal but is that such a bad thing
2: Right, so let's call that the nightmare scenario. I'm sorry to be so dramatic, melodramatic, but the nightmare scenario. So, yes, you, you could lose the vote tomorrow. The deal that Theresa May negotiated as a divorce agreement is defeated. Uh, no extension is granted. In fact, even if Britain asked for an extension, it's not necessarily the case that the rest of the European Union is going to give it to them. So, the nightmare scenario is we get to March 29th, 11 p.m., Greenwich Mean Time, and there's just no deal then what the hell do we do the next morning when we wake up? For instance, will there suddenly be border crossings between Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland, or the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland? Right now that border is porous, people move back and forth across it daily, will that cause problems? What about people living in Paris or living in Rome who are British, who have certain rights do they still have those rights? Can they even continue to work there? Are they going to need a special visa or vice versa? What about European Union residents who are living in London or living in, in Glasgow? Do they suddenly need new permits? And that's the fear. No one has really planned for what we call the no-deal Brexit. And the fear, of course, is that it's going to cause turmoil on the stock market. You could see a 1,000-point drop. And if it drops in Europe, trust me, it would drop here in North America as well. So from the world standpoint, I don't think we want the nightmare scenario. We'd like some kind of orderly planned exit. But what that would be if they don't vote for this tomorrow, I don't know.
0: Speaking of exits... Uh, the uh, concern from Scotland uh, is that uh, if, in fact, this goes the way that it seems to be going right now, uh, that seems to have fueled the fires of a, a referendum up there. We can't forget that Scotland a few years ago had a referendum whether they wanted to leave the UK. and that They that's they stay, but by the narrowest of margins, and uh, I know the Prime Minister Sturgeon was talking about maybe reinstituting that kind of a, a referendum in Scotland if they don't like the way that uh, Prime Minister May handles this.
2: Yeah, see, again, you're actually right, Bill. So I mentioned that people distill these referendums down to sort of one key issue. In Scotland, they had to vote for independence, but they actually voted to stay. And the major reason was that uh, Scotland assumed that if it left the United Kingdom, it would instantly be granted admission to the European Union. And the European Union said, no, no, no. No, 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 that's not the way it works. If you leave the United Kingdom, you might be out on your own for several years before your application could be processed. So on the margin, enough people said, well, let's stay, let's stay in the United Kingdom because that gives us access to the European Union. Now, three years later, four years later... If Britain decides to leave the European Union, then Scotland says, "Then well, what the heck did we stay for? We, we stayed to be in part of the European Union, and now you're leaving, so you're absolutely right. And don't forget the situation in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland also voted as a group to stay. Uh, they uh, like what they've got right now. They like the open borders with Southern uh, Ireland and the, and actually the calmness. I'm old enough to remember when there used to be all these protests about Northern Ireland and British rule, what have you. But there's been a calmness there. They're very very worried that this is going to go back. So look, if Scotland's going to vote to leave, maybe Northern Ireland should seek some kind of of independence, or maybe maybe even Irish reunification, just like they had Germany and reunification. Maybe there should be Irish reunification. Those talks would come up hugely if Britain walks out of the European Union.
0: High drama, indeed. Marvin, thanks as always for uh, shedding some light on this. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder, of course, from the DeGroote School of Business.